Psalm 96. If you have your Bibles, would you open them, please? Titled the message is The Lord of Worship. We began a sermon series last week, and we're getting back to the heart of worship. We're learning how to worship, biblically how to worship. Psalm 96 is a psalm of worship. It's David talking about his worship to God. David was a man after God's own heart, and one of the reasons I believe he was called that by God himself was because David knew how to worship God. May we know as well. Psalm 96 Let's read together the first two verses, although we'll be looking at all 13 verses. David begins Psalm 96. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord, bless His name. Show forth His salvation from day to day. Oxymoron. Maybe you've heard of that word before, but if you haven't, let me tell you what it means. It means putting two words together that appear to contradict one another. Oxymoron. Let me give you an example of such. Jumbo shrimp. White Chocolate, plastic silverware, sanitary landfill. <laughs> Freezer burn. How about another one? Boring worship. How many times have you heard somebody say, I, I went to church and the service was boring? Music boring, preaching boring, people boring. Whole worship service was boring. You know, that's an oxymoron statement. Because true biblical worship is never boring. Genuine worship that's done in the spirit and in the truth is never boring. It's exciting, it's uplifting, it's inspiring, it's challenging, it's convicting, it's joyous, but it's not boring. Now, I realize that some of you perhaps think worship can be boring. Can I suggest to you the problem is not the service, it's you. heard the story about a little boy who was coming home from church with his mother. And he said, Mom, can I ask you a question? She said, sure. He said, Mom, what's the highest number that you've ever counted to? Well, his mother said, I, 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 I really got to think about it for just a second. But what's the highest number you've ever counted to? And the little boy said, that's easy, Mom, 6,118. 
The mom said, well, why did you stop there? He said, because the church service was over. You see, some of you come to church like that little boy. You've disengaged your mind. You've disengaged your heart. You've already made up your mind before you ever walk in the door. Boring, boring, boring. And therefore, you get what you're looking for. Boring, 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 and you leave. Again, may I suggest to you, without hurting your feelings, or maybe they need to be hurt, the problem's you. Because if you are biblically worshiping, you will never find worship boring. It's impossible. When the King of kings and the Lord of lords is being high and lifted up, I'm telling you it's exciting. It's transforming. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. David, in Psalm 96, is worshiping. He's come to church of his day. He's got the word of God of his day. He's come to worship. As we look at this psalm, we're going to see he's motivated by two things to worship. First of all, God is still on his throne. David has come to worship a ruling, reigning God who's in control. He's also come to worship a ruling, reigning God whose Son is coming again. The reign of God, the return of Jesus, His Son, motivates David in Psalm 96. Four things I want us to see about David's worship, and remember, it's not just about David's worship. Whose worship is it about? Ours. It's not just about then, it's about now. In verse 1 and 2, notice with me, worship should exalt the Lord. Worship should exalt the Lord. Now, as I read verse 1 and 2, those of you who have your Bible, see if you notice anything unusual about these two verses. Okay? Y'all are a pretty smart bunch. So let's look and see. I'll try to help you out as I, re as I read. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord, all the earth. Sing unto the Lord, bless his name. And show forth his salvation from day to day. Now what do you see there? Two verses, you see something said what? Once, twice, three times. Three times. Rapid fire, like a machine gun. David begins a psalm of worship by saying, Sing unto the Lord three times. Now, why did he say it three times? Always be a thinking person. Don't just worship with your heart, which is emotion. Also worship with your head. Be cerebral. Why did David say, Sing unto the Lord three times? It Was it because he stuttered? No, he didn't say it three times because he stuttered. Was it because he was trying to prove a point? You know, sometimes when people are trying to prove a point, they'll say something repetitively. They'll say something repetitively. They'll say something repetitively. 
That could have been. But I believe that it goes a little deeper than that. You see, I believe David said, sing unto the Lord three times, because three is a triune number. And the God that David worshipped, and the God that we worship, ladies and gentlemen, is a triune God. Oh yes, he's, o- he's only one God, but he's three persons. One God, three persons. Three persons, one God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, Three persons make up the triune Godhead. We are to worship God the Son. When we worship God the Son, we bring glory to God the Father. And we worship God the Son and bring glory to God the Father through the power of God the Spirit. You say, Pastor, I don't understand that. It don't make any sense to me. How can you have one God and three persons? How can you have three persons but one God? Pastor, anybody with any sense knows one plus one plus one equals three. That's human math. Bible math says one plus one plus one equals one. Pastor, I don't understand it. You don't need to understand it, but you better believe it. You try to understand it, you'll go crazy. But if you deny it, you'll go to hell. And so David begins this psalm of worship by acknowledging that the God he's going to worship is three. Sing unto God the Father. Sing unto God the Son. Sing unto God the Spirit. Sing what? A new song. That word new doesn't mean something that's never been done before. It means something that has been done before, but it's done with a new freshness, a new contemporariness, a new pertinence, a new relevance. It's not just an old cliche from the past. It's not just something we say from yesterday. David says, when I come to worship the triune God, when I come to worship the Father, when I come to worship the Son, when I come to worship the Spirit, I come with a new song. I don't come with some old stuff. I don't come with something that's irrelevant. I don't come with something that's non-contemporary. I don't come with something that God did for me 40 years ago. He's not the God of yesterday. He's the God of today. And I worship him for who he is to me today, what he's doing for me today. I worship him in the moment. What he did in the past, I'm grateful for, but I'm not worshiping a God of yesterday. I come with a new song, a new song. Do you have a new song? Is your song fresh? Is it relevant? Is it contemporary? Does it reflect who God is right now in your life? Does it reflect what God is doing right now in your life? So many times when we have testimonial services, people will stand up and they'll say, well, I want to thank God for my salvation. 
there's nothing wrong with thanking God for your salvation, but if that was 50 years ago, what's he done for you since? We all, yes, we should be thankful for the past, but folks, worship should be in the present. Notice David says, day to day. I love the Lord. But the Lord of yesterday is not my Lord today. I've grown. I know him better. I love him more. And I hope my worship reflects that. And I hope yours does. I'm thankful for what God did for me yesterday. But God's doing things in my life right now I could shout about. And that's what worship should be. It should be an exaltation of who the Lord is right here, right now, to you and what's going on in your life. Notice in verse 2 and 3, David says worship to him is not just an exaltation of who the Lord is and what the Lord is doing in his life day by day right now. But notice it also is an extension of his kingdom. Now I want you to listen to this one. This this is going to surprise some of you. David says in verse 2 and 3, Sing unto the Lord, bless his name. Show forth. Reveal his salvation from day to day. Declare, preach, teach, witness, testify, share his glory among the heathen, the lost, and his wonders among all the people. When we worship the Lord, part of that worship is sharing the gospel message with the lost. You see, most of us think that worship takes place at 10.30 to 12 o'clock every Sunday right here, and it does. But do you know that worship is also not about in here, it's about out there. It's not just about us, it's about them. And what David is saying is, the Great Commission is part of worship. The Great Commission, that most of us don't even know what it is anymore, is the primary central task of all who claim the name of Jesus and of every church that calls itself a New Testament church. And what is that? It's to take the message that Jesus saves from in here worship to out there worship. Jesus saves. And we're to take that message, he says, to the heathen, to all the people. We're not just to be Somerville Christians or South Carolina Christians, or American Christians, we're to be Christians to the world. We have a duty. We have a devotion. We have a labor. We have a love. We have a responsibility, ladies and gentlemen, to take the good news that Jesus saves to every race of every place and every face across this world with great haste. That's what we're to do. So worship is not just sitting in here listening to songs and sermons. 
Worship is about going out there Monday through Saturday and practicing missions and evangelism and soul winning, telling people that Jesus saves. I can't save nobody, neither can you. I can't change anybody, neither can you. And we're not told to save anybody or change anybody. God brings the increase, not you or I. But what we are told to do is take the word to the people, to tell them the gospel truth, that the Spirit of God might take the word of God and together they might bring that sinner to a Savior. Jesus saves. Back in 2000, you might even remember this, a Russian submarine sank to the bottom of the Barents Coast. 118 sailors were on that submarine that sat at the bottom of the sea. The water was too deep. The pressure was too great for them to escape from the bottom up. The Russian Navy did not have the technology at that time to be able to go down and bring the men up or bring the submarine up because they were embarrassed that one of their submarines sunk to the bottom. They were reluctant to ask the world to help them. And so 118 men, 118 sailors are sitting at the bottom of the sea, dying. They needed to be saved, but nobody could save them. Hours went by, days went by. And 118 Russian sailors died in that submarine. Every one of them. The submarine became their tomb. Ladies and gentlemen, our world around us is a sea of sin. And fellow members of our human race are sitting at the bottom of sin with no hope. This world can offer them nothing. But we have something to offer them. Jesus saves. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And folks, when we tell them Jesus saves, that is worship. Let's move on. David's getting wound up a little bit. I told you last week, I think he had a little Pentecostal in him. Maybe a little holiness, church of God. Maybe a little charismatic, I don't know. Say, Pastor, how will we know when you get to heaven you can ask him? Okay. But notice in verses 4 through 9, David says, when I come to worship the Lord, I exalt the Lord for who he is now, for what he's doing right now for me. I don't worship a God of the past. I worship a God of the moment, the present. And then he says, 
when I worship, I understand that soul winning is a part of that worship. Evangelism is a part of that. Missions is a part of that. Taking the, the whole word to the whole world is part of that. And I can't say I'm really worshiping if my, if my lips are silent when I tell the world Jesus saves. And then he says in verses 4 through 9, worship should be an expression of the Lord's greatness. Now David is about to do some shouting here. I won't, but he did. Look what he has to say. He's getting wound up here. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are nothing but a bunch of junk idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Given to the Lord, O oh, you kindreds of people. Given to him the glory and the strength. Given to the Lord the glory due to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear him before all the earth. Wow. started out with the reverence, quietness, and sometimes worship should be that, right? And then he gets cranked up. And now the quietness becomes a little bit of movement, perhaps. The quietness now turns to a little bit of vocalness. You see, he's talking about the greatness of his God. What, what, when you talk about the greatness of your God, what does that do to you? Five, six, seven, eight, nine. How big is your God? How great is your God? How mighty is your God? May I suggest to you the greater your God is, the more you'll worship Him as such. You got a small God, you'll have small worship. You have a great God, you'll have great worship. And David says, My God is great. He's greater than all the other so-called gods. They're nothing but a bunch of dead idols. My God is the only God. He's the true and living God. He's the God, the creator. He made everyone and everything. He's God, the savior. He'll save whosoever will come. He's God, the Lord. He's Lord over everyone and everything. He is Father God to all of those who have come to him by faith and been born again and been become part of his family. He's God omniscient. He's God omnipotent. He's God omnipresent. He's all wise. He's all powerful. He rules and reigns from heaven, but there's no place that he's not. He's holy. He's timeless. He's eternal. He's triune. He's the personification of love. He's the personification of truth. David says, I know him, and he knows me. All strength and all honor and all beauty and all majesty and all glory be unto him. A doxology of praise comes up from David's lips. Now look at verse 8. Don't miss this. He says, Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name and bring a... Come on now, say it. Y'all ain't said that. Bring an offering. 
An offering of what? Bring an offering and come into his courts. I know some of you who don't go to church much are saying, Pastor Jim is just sitting us up for an offering. Quite frankly, I don't want your money. Never have wanted it. That's why I don't say much about money. Been here 25 years, maybe 30 times in 25 years, I ever say anything about it. If I have to beg you for your money, you keep it. The Lord blesses, the Lord rejoices in a joyful giver. You want to keep it, you keep it. We don't need it. I've never looked to people to pay the bills of this church. I've looked to God. We'll always look to God. But David's not talking about a financial offering here, so you can put your hand off your wallet now. David's saying there is a time you should give financially, but he said when you get caught up in worship, what God wants is not a cash offering. He wants a lip offering. He wants praise. He wants thanksgiving. He wants gratitude. He wants rejoicing. And he wants an offering like that that comes out of your mouth. Not the singer's mouth. Not the preacher's mouth. Not the people around you's mouth. Comes out of your mouth. 900, uh, 690 times in the Bible, it has something to say about an offering of thanks, a sacrifice of praise, God's people opening their mouth and rejoicing in who he is and what he's done. When's the last time you said, thank you, Lord? Appreciation, Lord. Gratitude, Lord. None of us like ungrateful people who always come with their hand out, take what we give them, and never say thank you. I told you last week, God doesn't like it either. Thank Him. Make your prayer time a prayer time of thanksgiving, among other things. Make our worship time a worship time of thanksgiving. Thanking Him for who He is. Thanking Him for what He's done. Not yesterday, but doing right now and what He's going to do tomorrow. Because the God of yesterday, who's the God of today, is the God of tomorrow. And then lastly, one other principle. Now you see how all this is flowing? David begins with an exaltation of the Lord. Lord, here am I right here, right now. I thank you for who you are to me right here, right now. I thank you for what you're doing for me right here, right now. Lord, I, I, I rejoice in you. You're God the Father. You're God the Son. You're God the Spirit. I rejoice in you. And then he says, Lord, I understand I have a, a duty to take the message that Jesus saves out there to the heathen out there to the lost. I need to tell them about this one I worship who redeemed me from my sins and can redeem them. And then he says, as we just said, he said, Lord, I worship you because you're great. There's none like you. He expresses God's greatness. And then he closes from exaltation of the Lord to extending the Lord's kingdom to expressing the Lord's greatness to expecting the Lord's return. 
Notice verse 10 through 13. David talks about event that is going to happen. It's yet future, but he speaks of it with a certainty, a surety. It's going to happen. Notice in verse 11, uh, 10 through 13, he says, Say among the heathen, the Lord reigns. The word also, the world also shall be established, that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. Let the heavens rejoice, let all the earth be glad, let the sea roar in the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful and all that is therein, then shall all the trees of the woods rejoice. Before the Lord, for he he cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. David says, when I come to worship the Lord, I have one eye open and one eye closed. I'd show you how he did it, but I can't. Okay? When I was 21, I could do it. Can't do it now. But he says, I worship the Lord looking up with one eye and down with the other. Of course, we're just having some fun with that, but what he is saying is this. As I'm worshiping the Lord down here, my mind is, is, is very much understanding he could come again at any moment. Do you know that before this service is over, before this service is over, we could be out of here. The Lord could return, and our worship in faith would become a worship in sight. Our worship down here would become a worship up there. It could happen. David said, I expect the Lord who reigns to come again. This one who's the Redeemer is going to come again as a judge. Be ready. Most of you understand Bible prophecy. You know that the Lord's return is in two phases. We're waiting on phase one. Phase one is when he comes as Redeemer. He comes to take the people of God out of this world before the wrath of God comes. That's called the rapture the great exodus of God's people from earth to heaven. That's what 1 Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5 is all about. The coming of the Lord for his own. Not necessarily church members, not necessarily religious people, certainly not just Baptists. He's coming for those who have placed their faith in him and him alone and repented of their sin. And if it happened right now, bing, we'd be out of here. Would you be gone or would you be sitting here wondering where the pastor went? We pay him a good salary. Where is he at? <laughs> you see, he's coming again. The rapture phase, he comes as redeemer, but David's not seeing that part. David's looking a little bit further because he talks about the Lord coming as a judge. Seven years after he comes in the rapture phase to take away 
the children of God, the sons and daughters of God. Seven years later in the revelation phase of his return, he will come not for us, but we will come back with him. And he will come not to redeem the world, but to judge the world. A world that rejected him and chose to follow the devil in the tribulation period. He's coming again. If this was the last worship service you and I would ever be in, how would it be remembered? Wake up. How would it be remembered? How would it show in heaven on the great movie screen there? August 12, 2018. Worship service at Miles Road. Let's see what you were doing. I know you were praying for the pastor with your head down and your eyes closed. <laughs> and I deeply appreciate that. He's coming again. You say, when? I say, soon. How soon? Very soon. How do you know? Because all the signs of his coming have been fulfilled. We're not waiting on any signs. They've been fulfilled. We're just waiting for the Father to say to the Son, go get my children. And we have before us, ladies and gentlemen, the primary sign. No other generation has ever had the primary sign as we have it today. And that primary sign is the nation of Israel. You want to know what's going on in this world? You want to know how soon we are to Jesus coming again? Watch the Middle East and specifically watch the nation of Israel. The prophet Ezekiel in chapter 37 of the book bearing his name in the Old Testament said in the last days, the last days, just before the return of the Lord, Israel would come out of the graveyard of nations. The nation of Israel will be resurrected from the dead of nations and come back to life. No nation has ever done that before. Yet in 1948, Israel comes back to life. The skeleton comes out of the grave and puts on flesh. As Ezekiel said, and he was speaking of Israel. 1948, Israel became a nation again. And some of you saw it. Ezekiel chapter 38 says that when Israel becomes a nation and reestablishes itself in the homeland, great enemies will rise up against her. Ezekiel 38 gives us those enemies, by the way. Ezekiel doesn't say, you figure it out. He says, let me tell you exactly who they'll be. And he gives us the geographical locations of those enemies. It's interesting that one of them, apparently the one who's behind it all, geographically fits the nation of Russia. He mentions one by name, Persia which is now modern-day Iran. He says in the last days, Russia, Iran, 
along with other Islamic allies, will sneak attack the nation of Israel. Russia will be coming for the wealth. The Islamic nations will be coming to exterminate the Jewish race to finish what Hitler couldn't do. Is it just coincidental? Is it just accidental? Is it just ironic? As we look at the world scene right now, Russia and Iran are now in bed together. They're allies. They've got all the other Islamic nations on board with them. They're surrounding Israel. You want to know what the fight is in Syria is all about? It's about giving Iran and Russia a jump-off point to attack Israel. And we're alive right now. We're seeing it. Israel right now is not a Christian nation. Far from it. But it's interesting what the religious Jews and the secular Jews want. Poll after poll of religious Jews say all we want is the rebuilding of our temple. Which, by the way, has an Islamic mosque sitting on the spot where it's going to have to be built. That's what the religious Jews want. We just want a temple. The secular Jews, they want peace. Because peace means they can make money. It's just interesting that the Bible says very clearly there is coming a world leader who is going to give them both what they want. He's going to sign a covenant with death with Israel. A peace treaty, if you will, but it's a death contract. And he will give to the religious Jews the spot to build their temple, even if it means tearing down the Islamic mosque. And he will underwrite the securing of that building of that temple with his own security forces. And to the secular Jews, he will promise them peace. The Bible tells us that. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 11, the coming of the Antichrist who will broker the deal. My point to you is this, and we don't have time to go any further. My point to you is this. David was expecting the coming of the Lord. He worshipped then. He didn't even have the signs that we have. We have all the signs before us. They're flashing before our eyes like neon lights. You have to be blind not to see it, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus is coming again. So when you come to worship, understand this might be the last worship you'll have because the next one may be up there. Heads are bowed and eyes.